The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. the first four verses of 1 Peter chapter 5 as Peter begins to wrap up this epistle. He writes this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight And do it not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the Word of God. I was thinking about the subject of leadership, just as Peter has raised the leadership of the church for us. Rather amazing in the providence of God to think back to 1776 when this country was at its crisis of original formation with people all having been citizens, basically, of Great Britain until that time. There were approximately three million people living in what we call America then. Three million. We have over 300 now. And yet, my point is that from that small population of three million, God raised up at least six, and we could debate how many, six world-class leaders of our early nation. George Washington, John Adams... Jefferson, Franklin, Madison, Hamilton, others surely would qualify. We could discuss that. But it's amazing the way in which we had men of monumental stature and courage to help form this nation and give us our forming documents like our Constitution. We were three million strong, and we had all those leaders. We are 300 million strong. Would you actually contend with me that we have as many men of such stature or women to lead in any way today? Do we have a hundred times as many strong leaders? Submit your list to me. I'd like to see it. Where have all the leaders gone? Presidents and prime ministers, you know, are Alternately, any hour of the day, the most beloved and the most detested people in their nation. Somewhere there's a party of folks who love everything they're doing, and somewhere there's a party that would be happy to kill them if it could. Isn't it amazing the way 
we raise leaders up and then we almost delight in tearing them down again. The CEO, the head coach, the governor, the principal, the pastor, the company owner, all the attitudes. Think about all the attitudes you have towards leaders in your life. And you have to wonder what sane person actually seeks after and desires top leadership in a bent and broken society like the one we have. If somebody is ready to claw their way to the top of the heap, whatever heap that is, business, politics, the church even, if somebody is avid to get that top position, you almost should suspect them for that passion that they have to be on the top giving the orders. The fact is that sometimes the very best leaders are those that need the most persuading to take office or to fill a place of responsibility. Maybe you wonder why in 1 Peter 5 we are suddenly reading about leadership by elders of the church, and we are talking about those who lead the church. Elders here are simply not those who happen to be elderly. They're those who are appointed to the office of leadership in the church. And it's really not that hard to figure out Peter's line of thinking here. Because throughout this whole letter, he's been talking about the subject of suffering and tough times for Christians. Believers are scattered. They're among Roman culture that is harsh and uh, adversarial towards them, and they're struggling with how to be God's people in those kind of days when everything seems oppositional. So it really would be lacking if Peter did not, somewhere along the way, talk about, well, who will lead God's people? Because certainly they are scattered, they're somewhat helpless, they're weak. They need people to guide and to teach and to bring forward the principles of of God to them. And we read in 4.17, just before this fifth chapter, that Peter said it's time that judgment or sifting is going to start with the household of God. So who will lead God's people while they're being sifted and and, uh, facing tough times? We have an exceptional congregation here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and one thing I want to be careful not to do is to boast as if we are somehow the perfect church. We certainly are not. Our leaders are not perfect from senior pastor on down. We are very imperfect. But God has given us a healthy and unified, growing church. And I think leadership is a factor that has made it so. As we now count 1,200 actual members, professing adult or teenage members, and we know there are many children and youth who have not yet professed their faith, plus many that we would call adherents, regular attendees who are here with us and share with us in our our fellowship. We're really talking about somewhere around 1,500 souls. That's a tremendous Christian family to have responsibility for and to figure out how and who shall lead them. I've found that human beings do have at least some unnatural tendency to, to criticize leadership. If they're not in leadership themselves, they know all the reasons why something's going wrong and, and what the leaders are doing wrong. Why aren't all the elders at the Wednesday gathering for prayer? Why aren't the elders doing blank? You fill it in. Something that they should be doing. We frequently hear a criticism for 
our not following a pattern that some churches do when they divide up the congregation into units or parishes or whatever they might want to call it, and, and every ruling elder has 25 or 30 homes or individuals that he contacts and tries to give encouragement to or advice or at least follows them up and finds out what their needs are. Why don't you do that, Pastor? I've been asked that a lot of times. That, by the way, is an excellent way to have elders lead in a small church. If you have four or five elders and 100 people, you can make that system work, and it will be a very good system for helping the people. If you have three or four hundred people, it's doubtful that you've got the elders to make that work. When you have 1,200 people, I know you don't have the elders to make that work. We would need, I, I estimate, 50 elders to make that work instead of 18. It's just not going to happen that way. We need other ways of shepherding and contacting and helping and encouraging God's people. It's easy to find what's wrong with the elders of the church, but I want to tell you there's a lot that's right. Based on the principle that, you know, you talk about an iceberg and how three-quarters of it is unseen under the surface and one-quarter sticks out at the top above the ocean, I wish there'd be some way that I could show you the underwater portion of what your elders are doing. In fact, as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, what about this current past week, the week I've just come through as as a leader here at church. I, I felt it was a pretty representative week when I thought about it for what our elders actually do. I was with them Thursday night in a three-hour session meeting. We dealt with interviewing a new employee who you'll be hearing about soon. We dealt with many of the committees of the church and the finances and the other things that have to be reviewed. I was with elders another night when several of us were intensely focused on a particular problem of a particular family in our church and how we could bring counsel to bear upon that broken situation. I was with two of them another night when we were interviewing new members. That's a delightful task we have to hear the testimonies and and vote to say these folks are ready to become members here. I know that others of our elders were leading home fellowships this week. They were leading or involved in men's groups doing many things that most of you don't see. I can assure you, if you saw the underwater part of the eldership iceberg, and maybe I shouldn't compare them to an iceberg because that doesn't sound very flattering, actually, but uh, you would have a different perspective on what our elders do. They're not just men who wear a title and march in here to serve communion and march out again. There's much involved in being an elder in this or any church. We're going to be meeting as a nominating committee this week to decide who might be the next elders to fill spots that are needed on our session, deacons, deaconesses likewise, here in the near future. I want to bring forward several things that I think are in this text for us to hear. You may not ever be an elder, but you help elect them and you hopefully receive leadership from them, so I think this is important for all of us to hear. First Peter 5, in the first couple of verses, talks about the calling of elders in the church. And Peter writes and identifies himself, importantly, as a fellow elder. Now, the mere fact that Peter did that and said that is actually quite instructive. He could have very easily stamped his foot here and said, I write to you 
as an apostle. In fact, I write to you as the number one apostle that he wouldn't know, of course, that the Church of Rome was later going to call him the first pope and see him in some absolute high position that he would write and say, now listen, I'm Peter. You better pay attention to me because I'm important. He could have thrown his weight around. But he didn't even call himself an apostle, that unique office that he had as a witness of the life of Christ and the resurrection. He called himself a presbyter, an elder, a fellow elder. Presbyteros, if you don't know it, is the root of Presbyterian, the rule of elders. Now, we say that elders today are both pastors like myself, a teaching elder, and ruling elders. We work together as a session to govern a church. It is the elders that are the main office in the book of Acts that as Paul and Barnabas and others went out starting churches, we read, every place they appointed elders to lead once they had left. The word bishop does occur two or three times, but there is no hint whatsoever that a bishop in the New Testament was some super elder who had great authority over many others. It's used almost as a synonym for elders. So the apostles saw this as the main office, and 1 Timothy 3 has Paul's words about the requirements or the qualifications for someone's life and character and conduct to be an elder. Peter calls them shepherds here. He says, you're shepherds of souls. And of course, that draws upon a rich mine of biblical metaphor where the word shepherd was used often to show the conduct of a leader. So interesting that both Moses and David were shepherds, real shepherds of real sheep for a long period of time before they were among the greatest leaders in Israel. And of course, we have John chapter 10, where Jesus calls himself the good shepherd who actually lays down his life for his sheep. I'm sure that Peter could not forget his whole life the things that Jesus said to him after Easter a short time later on the beach as we read in the last chapter of John. John 21, you remember Peter denied three times. Jesus met him on the beach and asked him, took him off to one side and I'm sure Peter was wondering, where do I stand? Jesus certainly was favorable towards me when uh, we were in his ministry together before the cross, before the resurrection. What does he think of me now that I denied him three times? And you remember what Jesus did. I think you all would know that. He, He said three times, do you love me, Peter? Maybe we were mystified. Why did Jesus have to ask him three times? And then three times say, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. He was saying, Peter, you'll show me that you love me, not just by protesting that you do, but as you go and do the task that I'm calling you to do, which is to care, care for the people of God. Feed them the Word of God. Know that among them some are lambs and and some are rams who will knock you down, but They all need your care and your leadership. Show me that you love me, Peter, by caring for my people. I remember standing in a line at a cash register at the Staples store one day, very specifically, this is a number of years ago, and uh, somehow the power blanked out in the store or something for a little time, and 
people said, oh, be patient with us, folks. We've got to get our registers working here or something. So we customers started talking to each other. And a big man standing behind me wearing bib overalls, we, who are you, you know, what do you do, so on, told him I was a pastor. And he said, oh, he said, oh, a pastor. He said, so you're a shepherd of the sheep, huh? And I said, yeah, that's about right. And he said, I don't know what experience he was coming from, but he said, well, you know, those sheep bite. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure where, where he was coming from exactly, but I said, yeah, I guess they've taken a nip or two out of me at certain times. But uh, it's, we're not going to go down the path of considering people of the church as sheep too far here. But Peter says, tend the flock. And he says it in an interesting way, by exercising oversight. Now, he doesn't seem to be focusing here on that one-on-one thing that certainly we have to do when somebody's hurt or broken or uh, suffering the effects of their sin. We have to go in and bind them up and clean their wounds and comfort them. There's that one-on-one kind of ministry, but Peter seems to be talking more about the broad ministry of the elders working together here. And interestingly, exercising oversight contains the Greek root word episkopoi, which is the word for the work of a bishop. So here he does say that being an elder makes you a kind of bishop where you're in charge of the big picture, not just the one-on-one individual pastor and an individual or elder and individual uh, hurting person. Take on the big picture visionary strategic work that it takes to manage the flock of God is what Peter is saying here. You have to watch the horizon for the coming of enemies. You have to scout out where the sources of water and food and pasture land and everything's going to be. And this is the big picture work. Do this work Not just the one-on-one work, but the work of charting a vision and a course for the people of God. So shepherding and the more executive sense of the elders working together are not at all uh, opposed to one another. In fact, the word executive, according to a dictionary, means anyone performing or being gifted for works of administrative management. Don't the people of God need administrative management that is in accord with the Word of God? We sure do. We need more than just you and me guiding you in your marital issue or something like that. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the Holy Spirit, here again, made you overseers, bishops, to shepherd the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Wise administration Unified vision by a group of elders working together, praying together, is important as well as what is done with individual lambs in their homes or in the counseling room. I'm happy to say to you that our session, I believe, has grown in stature and unity in the last about 15 years since we begin every meeting. Not, you know, it's so easy to come in. Actually, our book of church order says every meeting should begin with prayer. So, of course, you can just be pro forma, walk into the room, sit down. Okay, somebody, begin with prayer. Amen. Instead of that, for 15 years now, we have been beginning with what we call a season of prayer. 
We talk about the needs of the church. We talk about the hurting people of the church. We talk about the goals and directions of the church. And we have the men themselves perhaps have things they need prayer for, their families need prayer for. And we spend, it's been up to a half an hour sometimes in prayer before the meeting starts. I don't tell you that to boast. I want to tell you that you would know that your elders are men of prayer. And many of them join in quite often, two-thirds of of the elders participate in that time of prayer. Pray for us. We meet the Thursday after the third Sunday, if you can figure that out, every month. Sometimes the elders can't even figure that out, but uh, usually they do. Pray for us. We need wisdom and discernment as we try to lead in the way of the calling of an elder. But secondly, Peter goes into some things here in verses 2 and 3 where he's kind of examining and challenging the motives of the elders as shepherd leaders. He's trying to challenge them in their thinking as to why they took on this office and how they conduct it. Here's the first. The first condition on an elder's calling is this. He says, don't lead with a wrong spirit. In his words, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you do it. Now, to me, that addresses the fact that you can do right things for wrong reasons. Maybe an elder took on the office when he was nominated or someone asked him to serve, and and they said, George, you've got to do it. There just aren't enough others, and you're the best. Will you please do it? Please, please. And George didn't really want to serve, but he said, oh, all right, I'll do it. That should not be an elder's motive. Recall how Jesus challenged Peter and said, do you love me three times? In other words, is love for Christ the base motivation of your service as a leader in his church? I tell you, I hope I can be heard with sincerity and not boasting that I have to keep reexamining my own calling as a teaching elder. As I get older, as I know I'm a few years away, Lord willing, from retirement, why am I still doing this? Do I still have the passion that I had when I started? And I can tell you before God, I do. You know, when I go through a morning here of preaching two sermons and usually teaching in between, sometimes I'm, somebody commented on me once. They said, do you seem like you're stumbling coming down the stairs? I said, yeah, I'm tired. I'm wiped out. But I'm full of joy because I'm still glad for the opportunity and the privilege to preach the name of my Savior, and my calling to do that is clear. With Paul, I say, woe be to me if I do not preach. How can I be quiet in light of such a Savior as I have to tell about? You know, let me illustrate this point this uh, Paul is, or Peter's making here. By thinking about, for example, the Bible's teaching on financial stewardship and the tithe, you can teach the tithe to people as the law. You ought to tithe 10% of your income and bang your fist as you say it. Well, the Bible does teach that 10% standard, and I believe the standard still remains today as it did in the Old Testament. It's not merely law. But here's the point. You ought to teach it as a delight to obey God, not simply, you know, some heavy-handed legalistic obligation. 
The Scripture says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. It's a delight to be able to support the Lord's work. That's the way I want to see it taught. Not a grudging duty, a great exalted privilege. That's what Peter is saying here. Do you regard it, elder, as a privilege to serve or as some grudging obligation? But then in the second place, he says, don't lead because of the wrong incentives. He says, don't do it for shameful gain. Well, I know on behalf of our ruling elders, think of it, what is shameful gain for a ruling elder? Uh, If we say, uh, men of the session, ruling elders, we're going to quadruple your salary next year, uh, they'd say, okay, I think I'm doing it for free, am I not? Quadruple nothing is nothing. So how does shameful gain apply to a ruling elder? To a teaching elder, I'm paid for what I do. 1 Timothy 5, 1 Corinthians 9, make it clear that those who preach and teach should make their living from it. I don't apologize to you for that. It's not shameful gain to be paid to serve the Lord in a full-time capacity. I think it needs, the discussion needs to be not so much on money, but on the idea of shameful gain being applause, status, recognition. Elder, do you serve because some kind of career pride stirs in you as you walk in here on a communion Sunday with your dark suit on? Everybody says, here comes the funeral directors. And, uh, you know, do you take some kind of proud gain from that and think, I'm an elder in the church? Well, you're a servant of Christ who's been called to a privilege. How can you possibly hold that up as some star object of your personal resume? Does it matter to the elder or the pastor that no one but Christ, no one but Christ will ever see a lot of the things you're doing for the Lord or how you're spending your time? Will we be faithful even when the people aren't watching and especially when they're not applauding? And then the last of Peter's servant motivation qualifiers here is he says, don't, don't make wrong use of power. The way Peter said it was, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I remember working with a particular man. I loved this man in Christ. In some ways, he was one of the most effective elders I ever dealt with. He was hardworking in the church. He would sacrifice his time to do all kinds of things. But I saw him in a situation, and, and, and this became kind of the bottom line with this man, when he didn't get his way on a key issue. And he had to speak, but people opposed him. And he just became so angry and so frustrated. And he said, don't they understand that I'm an elder? And if I say it, they need to do it? And I just couldn't believe I was hearing that from my friend Dick years ago, another church, folks. I just couldn't believe it, that he thought that the office, the name, somehow entitled him to people's implicit obedience. Jesus said in Mark 10, the rulers of the Gentiles, the Romans, I think he was thinking about, they lord it over their people, but you should not be like them. Whenever Jesus talked about dealing with sheep, 
meaning the people of God. I never find a place where he talked about driving sheep. He talked about drawing them. My sheep follow me because they know my voice, he said. Leadership that has to coerce with bombastic dictatorial commands is not the leadership of Christ. Leadership that models Jesus in humility is what is sought after here. It's no, it's no uh, accident at all that verse 3 of our text, when he says not domineering, what does the, uh, what does the text end with? Being an example. The people will follow an example in whom they can see some stirring of the character of Jesus Christ. This week I reread, in the course of preparing this message, 1 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, almost as if I hadn't seen these. I certainly have seen it, but it just sprang upon me as something I hadn't thought about in quite a while. These verses, Paul said to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone and able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to knowledge of the truth. Boy, there's no place for a power dictator in that charge from the Lord. The force of truth in Scripture is what will draw people but we must not use it as a club or a whip to drive them. People need to glimpse the warm and winsome reality of Jesus Christ being lived out in a human life. They will follow a person, man or woman, where they see that. They will not simply follow abstract doctrines. They follow a leader of whom it can be said, this person has been with Jesus. Now, an elder should be reduced to a point where he would ask, I think, as Paul did in 2 Corinthians 2.16, who in the world is equal to such a task? When When we call people up and say the nominating committee has considered that you ought to be an elder, what we really like to hear is, who, me? Are you kidding? I'm not worthy of that. That's what we want to hear. The last thing we would ever want to hear is, well, it's about time. I've been waiting all these years for you to call and recognize that I belong on the session. That guy we're scared of. Who, me? Who is equal to such a task? The answer is none of us are. God takes our unworthiness and our consciousness of weakness and emptiness and fills it with himself and his spirit and his word and uses that to lead. I want to just tell you of an example. Um, Some of you may have heard this before. It'll be familiar. Others haven't. It happens to rotate around a particular day, July 2nd, 1863, at the Battle of Gettysburg. There was a man there who was a college professor, and of all things, at Bowdoin College, He had taught the classics, that is, Latin and Greek, dead languages, right? What good are they to prepare anybody for life, some people would say. Well, this particular man was named Dr. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. 
Now remember, a college professor of dead languages, not a West Point graduate. He volunteered when the president of his college tried to keep him from military service when the war between the states broke out. He said, no, I have to go. I can't think of others dying, and I stay here and teach. So he ignored the exemption that the president of the college tried to create for him, signed up, and he was received as a colonel very soon, commanding other troops from his state of Maine. Joshua Chamberlain was a totally remarkable man. I urge you to read about him. Uh, As human beings go, of course, he wasn't perfect, but he was one of the most thoroughgoing heroes I've ever read about or known anything about. He fought at many places. He was wounded five or six times. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor, became governor of Maine after the war, president of Bowdoin College, but all that was after this day at Gettysburg. When the 20th Maine Regiment under Chamberlain was holding a place you might have heard of called Little Round Top, a very strategic hill. Those of you that know the battle, some of you know it well. Little Round Top was the far left flank of the Union Army. Now, if the Confederacy could take Little Round Top or get around behind Little Round Top, they could fold up the whole Union line. So it was utterly important, a highly strategic position. Had to be held. Chamberlain had received orders that said, hold that ground at any cost, at the cost of your life. And so despite blistering Confederate attacks from skilled veterans, mostly from Alabama, Chamberlain was rooted to that spot, and it was a firefight for hours. Finally, there came a time in midday when this wooded ground, hilly ground, the, you picture the man, men from Maine on the high ground and Alabama below them. Both sides, I believe, were nearly out of ammunition. Some of Chamberlain's men had at most one or two bullets left, some none. Chamberlain didn't know exactly what to do, but he suddenly gave the order. He said, men, fix your bayonets. We're going to charge. 350 men from Maine charged about 800 men from Alabama, and one of the great acts of raw courage of that war. And they drove back the veteran brave troops from Alabama who also should be honored. Little Roundtop was won that day by the courage of a professor of Latin and Greek. But here's what I I note to you about Joshua Chamberlain, that that act is, is much written about What happened next, I think, was even more telling. That evening, they were collapsed on the side of Little Round Top, made their campfires. Men were absolutely exhausted from a hard day of fighting in the heat of July. And suddenly, an order was brought to Colonel Chamberlain. We need you to move to Big Round Top, because if they take that tomorrow, they'll do the same thing. They'll fold up the flank. You need to take your men to Big Round Top. The men were absolutely exhausted. Some other officers had actually refused to do this before Chamberlain was asked. Chamberlain stood up, and he didn't issue or bellow a command. He said, according to many witnesses, Men, I'm going forward to Big Round Top. The colors will follow me. As many of you as feel able, come along. And he moved out 
and every single able-bodied man of the 20th Maine got up and followed their leader. That, to me, was a tremendous testimony to what leadership is. Where have all the leaders gone? One individual's weight of character in devotion to Christ can make a huge difference, and that counts for moms and dads and teachers and elders, preachers, grandparents, business managers, citizens. One person's character reflecting the image of the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, accomplishes tremendous things. It's called servant leadership. I pray that God will call many of you, even those that will never be elders, to exercise that to the glory of our great God and King, the Lord Jesus. Father, we need leaders. Everywhere we turn, we need them. In classrooms, in political offices, in manufacturing, in great corporations, in small businesses, in homes, in marriages, in churches. Oh God, help us to lead more by character than by vaunting our strength or stamping our foot or shouting commands. May we lead as Jesus did when he went to Calvary for us. May it be to your glory when it is seen. Amen.